to break the mold, I think this is one of the issues with the pain science movement in the rehab space is we've kind of gone somewhat too far sometimes. And because those words that you say to them will massively influence their experience. Welcome to Swift Coaches Academy, a podcast dedicated to bringing health and wellness professionals the uncensored truth behind what it really takes to succeed in the health industry with me, your host, Zania Wood. As an accredited exercise physiologist and business owner for almost a decade, I'm on a mission to transform the lives of ambitious health professionals like you who want more and are ready to take action to create incredible impact in your careers and unlock financial freedom in your business. So join me as I speak candidly with industry leaders about the struggles and successes from within the trenches through thought-provoking conversations. A very exciting uh, episode and guest today. We have our very own in-house physiotherapist and functional medicine expert, Richard Game. Uh, He works with Swift Movement Academy as our head of rehab, newly appointed-ish. It's been a couple months now, but um, very, very much in. How are you? Very good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Um, Yeah. My morning's been good. Went for a little walk along the river. Yeah, what about nice. you? Yeah, that's a good start to the morning. We did a little bit of a walk as well. Took the dog out, except it looks like it's raining now and we were kind of on and off rain as well. So could be a nicer morning, but hey, I'll take it. Look, rain's not the worst thing that could happen. So <laughs> No, definitely not. Um. So before we dive into today, speaking about... Um, coaching cues, languaging, and and why that's so freaking important. I wanted to uh, give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about your history in a maybe a little bit of a condensed version. We can hear that um, we have a Canadian friend in the house, uh, but you've lost your A's and your sorries. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I've been here long enough that they're gone now, thankfully. Yeah. Um, So why don't you give us a little background of how you got into physio, what you did doing before that, and then, um, yeah, what what you're doing now. Sure. Yeah, we'll try to keep it to the condensed version because it's a long history. Uh, But being Canadian, so typical, grew up playing hockey and lots of other sports, so always very active in my childhood. Was that that ice hockey? Ice hockey, yes, I should clarify for you, Aussie audience. Yep. <laughs> Our grass hockey, very <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> yes, ice hockey, uh, but also soccer, volleyball, tennis, basketball, like you name it, pretty much played all the sports, always very active, but hockey was sort of the main focus. Moved into martial arts as I got older. Um, and with that, you know, playing sport, you always have injuries and things that come up. Plus, you're always trying to look at how you can improve your performance and optimize your performance. So over the years, just sort of studied for myself uh, initially, uh, as far as how do I manage injuries? How do I get better? How do I support my nutrition? Do all of those things. Um, I had lots of chiros, physios, osteos over many of the years. So as I was going through uni, it was sort of a natural evolution to go down that path. Um, So why, just before you move on, why did you choose physio? If you could have done osteo or chiro or any of the other like allied health diagnostic I was looking at a couple options, actually. I was, while I was finishing my undergrad, because for us in Canada back home, you have to do a four-year honors uh, before you can do a master's or a doctorate to go into physio or other uh, allied health and medical fields. So I was doing a bit of a pre-med. I was looking at actually potentially going into naturopathic medicine as well, because I was also studying nutrition and back home, I did my nutritionist degree. Um, So I was a nutritionist back home as well as PT and things. So I was looking at multiple options, but I 
I think given my history, I was always very much involved in movement, athletics, and very much the physical side of things. So I felt naturally at the time it was best to go into physio. I did have the consideration of going into osteopathic as well, but I think through academia and through more the traditional medical system, physiotherapy seemed the more straight line route. Um, and I think that aligned with me from a very evidence-based perspective of things that I'd seen in the past. Um, but looking back, I was probably more open to lots of different things at that time. And as you would know, as you go through uni and things like that, the evidence-based side comes out more and more. So I'm probably thankful I went down that path. And it also, being in the traditional medical system with physiotherapy does open up much of, lots of options. So whether you want to go hospital, whether you want to go private, there, there's always opportunity there, which is, I think, a broader, broader field for practice compared to being pigeonholed into one. In saying that, I was always going to go into private practice, musk and sport. That was always my thinking, again, given my background. But yeah, I still incorporate a lot of other aspects. So as you mentioned, practicing functional medicine and with my background in nutrition, I bring a lot of that to my practice as well. So I take a very holistic perspective to care in looking at all aspects of lifestyle and how that influences someone's experience of pain or how it they're going to improve or affect their rehab and injury, everything across that board. So looking at sleep, stress, nutrition, especially with a lot of the literature now, we know that there's massive impacts at looking at all those lifestyle components and getting that person better. Totally, totally. And I think that kind of ties quite well into, um, I guess, our topic today in terms of language and, and how that matters. And I think probably the reason you and I off air spoke about this being important is that we have prac students who come into Swift and we hear it all the time. And it's not because they're intentionally trying to say things in a negative light or, you know, use fear mongering or anything like that. They're the people who want to do that the least I feel, but mm -hmm. I feel like when they come in, it's sometimes word vomit or, you know, some nervousness that comes out. And so they say, oh, well, don't push your knees out or, you know, use your, use your good leg, not your bad leg or your injured leg or whatever. And I think that um, diving a little bit into that and, you know, you spoke about the nocebo effect. And so we can talk about like what that is as well. But I think that, that that's a huge thing that particularly new grads. And then even I see some people who've been out for a while are still not focusing on enough and recognizing the influence and impact that it's having on our patient outcomes outside of the fact that, you know, yes, you can have a beautiful program and you can know all the evidence-based uh, research and, and have an incredible, you know, periodized program, model, rehab, whatever. But if you can't articulate that in a way that is positive and effective, then our programming really um, is going to be hindered by our ability to to communicate yeah absolutely we've talked about this plenty of so-called soft skills and how those are things that a lot of new grads and a lot of students aren't really taught that well and coming out of uni it's an area where they need to focus more where normally they feel like they need to spend a lot of time on improving their skills and their hard skills as far as knowing the anatomy and physiology and how to program but yet they've completely forgot about the the skills that are going to be important for actually building a connection and relationship with the person in front of you to actually influence them, to get them to do the things that yeah. you're trying to do. So it's certainly undervalued, it seems. 
Um, I think there's more awareness now and people are paying more attention to those soft skills, especially with the research coming out and how language influences um, not only expectations, but actual outcomes with people, especially when we're talking about rehab and pain. Uh, you know, when we get down the pain side, there's a lot of things that are going to influence it that are beyond just purely a biomechanics perspective. Mm. I noticed that a lot too. And like, I'm saying this because I was guilty of it and I started out being like, I need to know the anatomy and biomechanics. And, you know, now that I'm a little bit older, um, <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I've turned a corner and I'm like, oh, it's a human who has like, you know, a, a person behind that. It's not a shoulder anymore. So um, yeah. I really feel like because I used to be that uh, new grad who was so enthusiastic about the hard skills, I feel even more passionate and and um, that it's an important topic to speak about. I think one thing that I hear a lot and I, I feel like it's still said, and maybe you would know more in the physio realm, but I feel like a lot of things when someone's moving or they're like, oh, you know, how bad is your pain or, or what's your pain out of 10, I feel is often a a common saying that you'll hear when someone's doing a movement or when you're, you know, palpating or, or doing things like that. Is that something that you hear often? Cause I guess for me, when I hear things like that, I'm like, well, why are you intentionally putting pain even into the conversation? Yes, they've spoken about it, but if you continue to reinforce what's your pain, what's your pain, then people start looking for that. Mm. Yeah. It's a tricky one. Pain is so convoluted and now in the last few years with all the pain science that's come out, it definitely makes it trickier to get a gauge of what we're supposed to pay attention to. I think a lot of the issue we see now, it's purely from a product of the biomedical model, which was very reductionist sort of views towards looking at the body. So we imagine pain is a direct output of tissue damage, but we know that's not necessarily the case anymore. And it's a really complicated subjective experience. So simply just looking at pain, it's not really going to give us a really good gauge, A, because everyone's going to experience it differently. But as you said, I think if we put too much focus towards pain purely as an outcome, we're sort of missing the mark as far as actually looking at the bigger picture of how's that person functioning? What are we getting them back to? How is this influencing them in their life and towards their goals and what they're trying to achieve? I think those are the more important things to look at and putting more focus towards the positive side and what we're getting them to be able to do. And yeah, less, less focus purely just on, on pain. So you'd say maybe like more outcome focused than like input and like what they're feeling, but what they're capable and their capacity is. Yeah. And not discrediting pain. I think this is one of the issues with the pain science movement in the rehab space is we've kind of gone somewhat too far sometimes. And it's very tricky to explain to someone, but a lot of people end up talking to a patient in a way that almost makes it sound like, oh, it's just in your head. And the yeah. worst thing you can tell a patient or a client is like, oh, it's all in your head. It's just the pains. Like, don't pay attention to it because that just doesn't work. We need to validate what they're experiencing and validate their pain, but do it in a way where we're not putting too much emphasis on it and focus more on the outcomes and the objectives that we want to look at. And also tying it in again towards their, their goals and things that have meaning towards them and tying it to their why and what they're trying to achieve and how it affects their life. Those things I think are, are more important than just the pain, but we do still have to validate the experience that they're having and not completely discredit it because I think you'll lose trust right off the bat if you go like oh well the pain doesn't really matter 
you know, it's just a subjective experience. It's all in your brain. <laughs> immediately, immediately, you're not going to get buy-in from that person. So we have to be cautious about how we, again, how we talk to that person and the language that we use, because that is going to influence their experience and their expectations in working with you. Totally. It it reminds me of, I used to have a client who like, that was, that was her whole world. And that was what was spoken about every session. Like it felt like every third rep was like, oh, how's the pain? Like it was just this hypersensitive thing. And so with this one particular client, I got to a point where I was like, look, I get that you're experiencing like on average a four out of 10, we've been over this. I'm not going to mention it anymore unless you do. If it significantly decreases, great, don't need to hear about it. If it increases and it and it's, you know, it's feeling worse, then let me know. But other than that, I want to talk about everything else in your life and in in your training because right now the the hyper focus on just that element I think is detracting and continuing to reinforce all that you have pain as opposed to what you are capable of. So, yeah, I, I totally agree we have to make sure that they feel validated and heard and it's not this dismissive thing because then people mm. are going to be like, righto. Um, but that we still can also, I guess, just articulate and communicate it in a way that's like, look, I'm not worried about this. And, you know, when we talk about things like tendinopathies, we know that a level of pain or discomfort during movement is actually very okay. Um, and sometimes, that's what we're almost not aiming for, but like we want to tap told what am I trying to say? We want to um, challenge tissues and therefore some pain with a tendinopathy is going to be experienced and that's totally fine. So um, I think the communication around how we bring that topic up in a way that, you know, if you've built that trust and rapport initially and it's not a dismissed thing, but it's like, hey, I don't know if this is going to be the best thing to help you improve. Um, I think that can be a really, really helpful tool as well. Yeah, absolutely. I often say like a major part of what physiotherapists do or should be doing is just reassur reassurance and normalization of their symptoms. I think a lot of people become very fearful when they have pain, especially if they've never had an injury before. Like a lot of people, the general population, they've never, maybe never had an injury. They've never experienced pain. So there's a lot of fear associated with that. So the more we can normalize it and just make them feel reassured and comfortable about, yep, this is normal. You know, most people go through this. It's normal to have this kind of pain. It's normal to have flare ups. It's going to be up and down. That gives them a lot of reassurance. And that alone is probably one of the most powerful things in the rehab journey of just making them feel comfortable with the symptoms and experience they're having. And part of that comes with experience. And I think that's where a lot of new grads or younger clinicians focus on pain a lot because they just haven't had the time in to understand a lot of the aspects that are just normal. You know, you go through prax in uni, but you've got someone who's pretending they don't actually have pain, right? And that first time you see someone who has like, uh, L4, L5, L5S1, herniation, major radicular symptoms. They can't move. They're listed. You know, they're not sleeping. That's that's a lot to take on as a new grad when that person comes in front of you and you actually have severe, severe symptoms, right? Mm -hmm. And so trying to trying to navigate how to give that person advice when you're really just experiencing those things for the first couple of years, you've only maybe seen a couple of people, it's quite daunting. So it takes a while to become comfortable with the prognosis and the symptoms that person will have over time and know the journey that they'll go through. And then to have the confidence 
to explain what that will be to them and what the pain and the experience is actually going to be like over the long term across that rehab journey. And part of that does just take time. Like some of it is just putting the hours in and seeing lots of different people with different conditions and different presentations. And you just get more and more comfortable with being able to give advice around that and actually managing around someone's symptoms and being able to modify their rehab journey based on that as well. Like I'm sure a lot of people have had that experience where someone comes in, they've got a really uh, angry rotator cuff. You try to give them some shoulder exercises and like none of them are working. Everything's aggravating. It can be difficult to know how to navigate that, but eventually you figure out what works for that person. And then you become comfortable in explaining that whole journey to them, which gives them again, more reassurance, makes them feel better. Hopefully in the long term, you have better outcomes, but yeah, the words that we use can be tricky. And there's the whole aspect of personalizing it to that individual. When we look at say the biopsychosocial model, being able to pick up someone who's maybe hypervigilant or fear avoidant or has kinesiophobia, like those things are massive, right? So how you speak to someone who presents with those versus say, maybe, you know, someone who's had the injury before they're an athlete, they easily can just push through. They're not worried about the pain. You have to speak to that person a little bit differently. Sometimes you got to get them to even Pull rein back it in a little. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're so like, it's a nine out to... of 10, but I need to do my workout. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's always going to be different presentations and yeah, you have to tailor your approach and how you speak to that individual based on how they present. But a lot of the, the fear avoidant behavior, hypervigilance and kinesiophobia, those are big ones to pick up on. And that just reinforces even more the normalization and positive wording that you need to use in speaking with that person. Because those words that you say to them will massively influence their experience and how they're going to go along. Yeah. And I mean, we've probably both seen this, right? Like one person who has kinesiophobia is told like never lift above five kilos. And then for 10 years, they're like, well, my doctor 10 years ago said that I can't. And then you have to go back and very cautiously try and, you know, explain that to them. And I feel like, especially as an exercise physiologist, we have an even harder time than you as a physio because we're seen as I feel like the second class health professionals because we can't <laughs> diagnose. And so to, you know, effectively go against a GP or someone who's seen as higher in the food chain, even if they're not movement specialists is a pretty challenging thing to do. Um, I wanted to just jump back for a second. So you mentioned picking up kinesiophobia or any of those other, um, those other two that you mentioned. Are there certain things that you look for or words or things that people would say so that you could pick up and go, okay, that person, you know, is definitely prone to or probably has that? Is like, what are you looking for when they're speaking mm. to you or moving? Yeah, the kinesiophobia, the hallmarks are going to be like, oh, I can't do that movement because of this, or oh, I'm scared of doing that movement, or I haven't been able to do that for years. And one of the tricks you can sometimes do is get them to do, I guess, action or outcome-based movements without telling them that they're doing a specific movement. I've done this so, before you know, as well. Yeah, a lot of people will be like, oh, I, I can't. I can't do a deadlift or I can't hinge. It hurts my back all the time. And then you might see them actually like bend over and pick something up and they're perfectly fine and they've got no issues. So you can pick up little things like that sometimes in there. It's clearly, they say one thing, but then you can catch them doing other things. So that's definitely going to be a hallmark of that behavior. The hypervigilance sometimes is a bit, it's a bit trickier. It's almost more 
And there are questionnaires. You can actually use validated subjective questionnaires to get a gauge of these as well, but you can pick up a lot just in the subjective. But the hypervigilant is going to be by more the more anxious individual. They're often seeing lots of different practitioners or have seen lots of practitioners and they're trying lots of different things and they're just hyper aware of everything and every little movement. And you can pick that up quite quickly. So those ones, yeah, you got to be a bit cautious with that hypervigilance as well. And that's where normalizing can help a lot. Um, those are probably the main, main things you can pick up. And again, some of it is comes with experience too. You start to see similar patterns of people when they come through you're like, okay, I've, I've seen this before. I've kind of dealt with this. I know I'm going to have to kind of just level things out a little bit, make it simpler, lots of positive reinforcement. And um, so you pick them up over time. If you can use subjective questionnaires and validated questionnaires, then that's always going to be great. So maybe in the intake, I know a lot of clinicians and I've done this in the past, you actually include questionnaires in your initial or following the initial and get them to fill them out. If you think you might be picking up some of those potential yellow flags or other psychosocial issues, that can be a big help. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Um, I feel like this sort of uh, leads into maybe, I mean, we've talked about um, when people are hypervigilant or, or feeling, I guess, some emotional responses around their physical pain. What about if we um, speak about, you know, the, um, the unintentional fear mongering, I guess it leads into that as well in terms of things that we've heard people say unintentionally like the the big one that I hear a lot is don't do x or y like deadlifts or um you shouldn't do whatever let's say even if it's someone who does have like a really bad like herniated disc or whatever and it's like don't do deadlifts I think that sometimes we don't realize without context around that um or the way that it's said can be something that actually stays with people for years and I guess I'm huge on this. You would know I pick it up in all our um, our team and our our students a lot. And instead, saying something like, "Hey, I, I, I deadlifts probably aren't the best option for you right now," I think is is something that I like to use instead of "Don't do deadlifts" or "Don't do this." Even if it's like like I said before, "Don't push your knees out." Right? Instead, saying. Um, try keeping your knees straight because we don't on, I guess, like a neurolinguistic programming side of things subconsciously, we, we actually don't hear the word don't we hear what it is. It's like, don't think of pink elephants. Like, what are you thinking of? Right. So (laughs) it's, it's very hard to take that away from us because our subconscious just hears pink elephants. And so that's what we think as opposed to, you know, it's, it's the classic telling someone don't run as opposed to like walk slowly or be careful. Um, and I think that we do that in the gym more often than we realize. And I think it might be helpful to have a think about this when, you know, anyone's coaching to think about any, any don't words that they're using, even if it's like for them in that moment, it's probably not a great idea for them to be moving overhead. That's how I would say it. I wouldn't say you shouldn't push overhead or we're not going to do this movement. I would say for the next couple of weeks, let's, you know, make sure that you're keeping your arm below parallel and moving really well in that region, I think is a much better way to frame it in terms of allowing someone to feel good about what they can do rather than, I guess, like you said, reducing their ability to do things and telling them what they can't and reinforcing that. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree hundred percent. And it does, 
does happen a lot, unfortunately, in the industry. And it certainly comes from other other clinicians and other uh, healthcare providers. And it can be difficult, say, you know, GP says, don't run, don't deadlift. It can be difficult to reprogram that because people hold on to that very strongly. It's the whole um, white coat uh, paradox, right? Where they believe very highly of the higher level. Like, yeah. Someone uh, with the white yeah. coat and the big piece of paper on the wall that has, yeah, yeah exactly. Paid a it's going to, it's going to mean a lot more than yeah, us in the gym trying to get them to do movement. And that can last for ages. And I've had to spend ridiculous amounts of time trying to reprogram people's underlying limiting beliefs. And that's ultimately what it becomes, right? It becomes a limiting belief. If you say you can never run again because you've got a meniscal injury, then that sticks with them for a long time. And it definitely takes a while. But I think the good thing is when we look at the evidence now, there's such a growing body of evidence against a lot of that component. So even things like herniations, prolapses, et cetera, with back pain, the fact that we can have such a high level of people who are asymptomatic, but yet can have no restrictions. That is, I think, lending a lot of credence now to the fact that we can get people moving and we can regain function. We can regain a lot of movements that for ages we thought, oh, you're you're not going to be able to do that again. So that's really positive because the evidence now can support what we see. And what we see is there's a range of people who can have such such a significant injury or from a biomedical perspective, what should be a really significant injury, but yet they've got no problems. They can return to high level sport. They can do things that we think they shouldn't be able to. So that makes it a lot easier to get more buy-in for people to reinforce that they can potentially do things and starting to shift more the language, like you said, towards more positive uh, reinforcement, focusing on what you can do. And then, yeah, being mindful not to use negative words like don't, can't, et cetera, because that is going to be quite restrictive. And it could be just, as you said, it's temporarily, we need to maybe modify and give them some restrictions perhaps, but the way that we say it needs to be very thoughtful and mindful and be mindful that we're not, yeah, we're not using nocebic words. And I think we mentioned nocebo a couple of times. So for maybe people who haven't heard it, I think everyone's familiar with placebo and the placebo effect is quite profound. That's why we have now in research, controlled trials, because we know that the placebo effect sometimes can be more than 50% of someone's actual outcomes. So that's super profound. And I think it still goes undervalued in the scientific community and in the clinical community. Um, But what a lot of people forget about is the nocebo effect, which is sort of the opposite side. So the negative words we use can then set that outcome right from there. So if we say you can't do this, or you're going to experience pain, or you're going to experience XYZ, you've set that expectation now, and the chance that they will experience it, regardless of what condition they have, has now been significantly higher. So we have to be very mindful about the words that we use and not using nocebic words. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, it's crazy how much that, you know, our brain controls what our body does. And um, it's cool, though, because I guess that means that we have the power to change it if we're, you know, willing to listen and learn and um, kind of back to that white coat, you know, listening to the person with the big piece of paper on the wall. I really um, love to use things like, OK, but how much weight does your doctor lift? You know, like, have they been in the gym? Do they actually know how to deadlift or are they just saying that because, 
I think, you know, another thing in, in the clinical world is the first thing that we're told to do is do no harm. And so therefore, if you keep someone in a little, you know, bubble and you don't let them do anything, then, oh, that's no harm. And I've done my job as opposed to, you know, actually we have to challenge some boundaries and we have to, you know, load some tissues and we have to get a little bit uncomfortable and outside our comfort zone, whether physically or psychologically even, to be able to get someone to perform the activities that they want to do in their life a lot of the times. And, you know, what happens after you restrict once and you restrict again. And then um, I've talked about this before in terms of, I like to call it your exercise vocab. Have you heard me talk about this? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So um, in terms of you know, like if your vocabulary is like a grade one level in uh, your exercise realm, it means that you can only move in like a very limited range. And I like to improve people and expand people's movement vocabulary so that they can move in all different planes of motion without feeling like, oh, well, I shouldn't flex my spine. It's like, well, the spine is designed to flex. So, (laughs) you know, maybe if you just bulged a disc, it may be a little uncomfortable for you. And that's potentially not the best option for you at that time. But again, the way that I worded that is in a way that still promotes the fact that it will heal and it will get better and we will return to this. And we still want you to be, you know, returning to a healthy mobile spine that does flex and move and bend and all those different things. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a short-term view towards everything in life these days, which is sort of endemic, right? People want a quick fix and they want the immediate results but that quick fix and the short-term solution in the long-term is going to put you at a major deficit, right? If you stop moving, we know that tissue needs load. It needs stimulus to actually maintain itself and stay healthy. So sure, short-term you avoiding certain movements might feel better, but now in the long-term you've got no capacity to do anything. And then mm-hmm. as the time goes on, you just become more and more frail. Quality of life continues to go down and now you're at a major deficit. So the whole graded movement exposure, progressive overloading, all those things are really, really important of getting people to not only build tolerance, build capacity, build an increased movement vocabulary, but also give them a sense of mastery and confidence. And I think that's a major part where graded movement exposure plays a huge role is again, the psychosocial component or the psychological component of getting them to feel comfortable and confident moving again. So it could be simple things like flexing your spine. How many people now are just terrified of bending or lifting or carrying with a flex spine because that narrative has just been put around so much that people are so tied to it. They're terrified of moving their back. And then when you actually get them to try to move and you look at their lumbar spine or their thoracic, like it's the stiffest thing you've ever seen. Mm. There's no movement. There's no segmental movement. And that whole thing is just rigid. And now you're left, you know, with more long-term issues of chronic low back pain, et cetera. So yeah, I think it's very important to build that capacity and build the confidence in people and being able to move through varied amounts of ranges of motion. Mm, I love that. And speaking of, I guess, uh, confidence and capacity, something that I wanted to touch on today with you was, you know, cueing in terms of, um, you know, how we cue for different types of people and, and what that looks like. Um, I mentioned before the car analogy before off air and you were like, what's that? Did you want me to explain? It's a, it's a we can do a little game. And um, so basically <laughs> the, the, this is how it works. So if I say to you, um, imagine your, like your dream car that you, you would love to have. What is it? Ooh, let's just go with like a Bugatti for now. <laughs> okay. Right. And so the, not what you want, but why you want it is important. So what mm. about the Bugatti is, um, appeals to you? 
most? Luxury, speed, styling. Okay, so if you had to choose luxury and styling or speed, which one is higher on your preference? Speed, definitely. Okay, so what I would say is that you're a kinesthetic learner. Would you feel like that's pretty accurate? Definitely. Cool. And kinesthetic, you're like me. We're like 5% of the population. It's actually the rarest one. (laughs) Um, But typically those people look for function. So if you, if you say in your car, like if speed is a function of it, and so you choose a fast car, right? But if you said it's the luxury or it's the way it looks, then that would be that you're, de- you're typically a visual learner. And then if you say, um, you know, the way it sounds, you're like, I love the rumble of the engine, then you're typically an auditory learner. Um, And so I find that a really cool way to quickly understand someone's learning style, because typically then you can also just view it and watch it in your clients as well. So when you are demonstrating or talking about cueing or giving an explanation of an exercise for the first time, are they watching you or are they listening to you, but maybe not really watching you very closely? Or are they trying to like do the movement at the same time? Like if you've, if you've seen a group class be performed, some people like half start the movement before you finish the demonstration. Those are the kinesthetic learners. Um, and then I think that's really helpful in terms of cueing because we can then go, okay, well, cause I'm a kinesthetic learner. So I would just get people to do it. And I, I didn't realize this for a while. I was like, oh, just jump under the barbell. And I would explain it while they're there. But if they're a visual learner, they're like, uh, but I don't, how do you, I need to watch it. So yep. I realized that the way that I like to learn is not the way that most people learn. Uh, and so to pick up, you know, it's kind of like if you stand behind someone while they're squatting and you're trying to speak to them and they try and like turn around over their shoulder during the squat, then they're typically going to be a visual learner. Um, but if they can just listen to you and do it perfectly, they might be a little more auditory or maybe, you know, you need to be tactile with them. You need to touch them or they need to get, then they're like, oh, well, I need to try it and sort of feel through a couple reps. So, um, I guess that's that's an easy way I find to articulate learning styles is using the car analogy. You can use that with your clients. Um, and then I guess that l- lends itself into the other sort of cueing in terms of, you know, are we using internal or external cues? Did you want to um, explain what that is? Sure. Firstly, I like the car analogy. I'm going to test that out with a couple of people <laughs> and see what kind of answers I get. <laughs> I think it's hard. The only thing is like for me, I don't, I'm not really a car person, but I'm also very function based, which is kinesthetic. So, you know, maybe that's yeah. kind of the way it is, but most people are going to be visual and they say like the car's pretty or it's big or whatever yeah. versus like, well, why do you want that car? It's like, are you getting a Jeep because you want to go four-wheel driving or whatever it is? So um, understanding the reason behind the car, I think, is more important than um, the car itself. But yeah, um, internal versus external cues. Internal versus external, yeah. So we've spoken about this and run through with some prac students. It's All of this kind of ties around to the art of coaching. So it's there's a lot to it. And when you're trying to get someone to learn new movements, movement, especially because some people don't have very good movement IQ. So getting people to actually learn where their body is at in space can sometimes be tricky. And the default for a lot of people is often to use internal cueing. So internal cueing would be like, you know, externally rotate your hip while you're doing this movement. 
Brace and, your core. Yeah, brace your core, right? Things like that. And most people are, are not going to have any clue what you're talking about unless they've been doing this for a while and they have a really good sense of their movement. Whereas using external cues would be using something, say, in the environment to get them to do that specific movement. So instead of saying externally rotate your hip, you could actually have something there and say, I want you to, you know, push out against that or touch this with your knee as you're squatting down. And that would give them more like an external cue opposed to focusing internally on their body. And research tends to show that we get much better results with the external cueing when you get them to focus on like task oriented movements or something in the environment to get them to do the movement. Another classic one is like deadlifts. So using the cue instead of, you know, I don't even know what I would say extend, extend your hips as you're coming up versus say, push through the floor and, you know, bring your hips forward to touch X, Y, Z. So there's very different approaches in how you're actually going to cue those movements that are going to have very different results with that person going through that movement. Yeah. I, some of the other external stuff that I've found is really helpful is like, you know, instead of knee over toe, it's like drive your knee to the wall or to the door mm. or something like that. It doesn't have to be something tactile but it can be something that they can visually see and understand um and i think that that external cueing can be used for everyone and it's i guess it's a blanket thing that's going to be beneficial for everyone whereas internal cueing is really only, only going to be for those people who have like you said that high movement iq who really already probably understand the movement quite well um and kind of know what you're talking about already um another thing that i really like is uh talking about like cue length and and when to cue so often at times you know mm. i used to mid-set try and have like this full-blown like justification and be like oh we're gonna do this and they're like th rep three of ten and i'm explaining the whole thing during which in hindsight is a terrible idea because they're <laughs> trying to think about everything i'm saying and do the movement um and so lengthy cueing i think is something that we need to be really cautious of and not to say like don't explain it but to say that during their movement piece is where we should be using short um, sharp cues and I'm really big on I don't actually care what you say like you could say banana and that could be the cue but if it makes sense to them and that helps them perform you know a flexed spine movement or whatever it is then cool um I think that you know sometimes the longer the cue is the the more gets lost in translation and the more convoluted it gets and so you know even if you are going to explain it in their rest period and then say okay whenever I say you know um, knees for you that means you know knees to the wall or or even knees to the wall is a great I guess concise cue as opposed to these lengthy stuff did you used to um, have the same experience and yeah definitely yeah and I think it's again it's one of those things that you get better with with experience and it's also a confidence thing. So it's very classic to over explain everything at the beginning. And I've actually even moved away from say intra set uh, or intra, yeah, intra set queuing. Sometimes I'll just let people like finish a whole set, even if the form is not ideal so that they can just start figuring out the movement. Because if you start throwing stuff at them, it's a new movement they've never done. They're trying to think about all these things they're mm -hmm. trying to engage and do. And now you're throwing stuff at them while they're trying to do it. They just get lost and really confused. So nowadays I've really stepped off of that a lot and I'll just let them sort of go through it, figure it out as long as they're not doing anything you know, that's seriously gonna hurt them. If the technique's less than ideal, I don't really care that much. We'll work on it over time. And it's more building that, building the, 
improvement in their movement over a longer time and not trying to fix it all in like one session right there. Um, and early on, I definitely was guilty of that, where I just like word vomit every cue I possibly knew. And, and it just, it doesn't actually help them. And the other component of that is as you get more confident, you don't have to try to oversell it. I think when you don't have the confidence yet, you try to throw lots of big words and lots of things out at them to make yourself sound good, but it's not actually helping the individual in front of you. Often less is more in that context. So just getting more succinct, more specific with your cueing. Um, and also, I guess this ties into what we were saying before around just graded movement exposure and not saying negative words, but I'm less, I'm less and less worried these days about suboptimal technique in the general population and in the rehab journey, because it's more, and this is definitely more rehab than say like, um, sports science and training high-level athletes, but in the early phases, it's just getting them moving and just getting mm. that exposure. So sure, maybe their shoulder rolls forward a little bit, or maybe they're got a little bit of kyphosis, lordosis, whatever, but they're moving and they're actually going through those movements. I'm happy with that. And we'll just get better with it over time. But you do want to be cautious of even in that scenario of over cueing things. And you can have a tendency when you over cue to go like, oh, your, your back's not straight. I really need you to straighten your back. But if you keep telling them that, then even little things like that can start to drive some of the fear avoidant behaviors. And now they're going to start to think, oh, well, now every time I'm not straight, my spine is rounding. It must be a bad thing. So we have to be very cautious in, in over cueing, especially with those. And that's not to say you know, if you've got an athlete, really high level stuff, they're doing maximal loads, one to three rep max kind of loads. Yeah. You want to be a bit more specific with those individuals, but someone in a acute subacute rehab phase doing less than 50% rep max loads, I'm much less worried about their technique specifically there. Mm, totally. That reminded me in terms of, you know, cueing, I guess how I do it is really giving them one, one thing to work on per set. And so, you know, if you are going to focus on, I don't know, let's say, I don't know, keeping their elbow up in whatever movement it is, I would just be saying elbow. And then I, I like to say like, good, your elbow's staying up. That's really good. And so I reinforce when it's positive. I'm not like, no elbows down. Don't do that. I just say elbow up. And so I'm reinforcing again, the positive and I'm saying elbow, elbow up. Um, and then reinforcing yeah good elbows in a really good spot and so for me that's probably become how I cue now um one thing per set and then reinforcing when it's positive and giving them that feedback because I guess personally I like to hear when I'm doing it well because if someone says elbow up elbow up seven times I'm like well am I doing it is it too much like sometimes I like a little bit of feedback on that as well but it's interesting you know like we can both get great results and have different ways of doing it, but both have sort of come around to the fact that there's lengthy queuing or I used to give like three or four things for someone to focus on in the same set. I'm like, oh, well, your back's not straight and your arm needs to rotate and you haven't done this and and make sure this. And they're like, they're confused. They're also deflated. Like I see that mm -hmm. a lot. They get really deflated because they're like, well, I can't do anything right. So yeah. this is really hard. And like, why should I, you know, come back? And I think back in the early days, especially when, you know, I was doing session by session, it was really hard because it's like, I want to give them everything I possibly can in this one session because what if they don't come back? And and that was a big fear for me in terms of the way that I would coach and understanding that to get the best results, we need to be 
able to provide the space for them to figure it out, but also be supporting them for a longer term journey, which I guess is why, you know, we like to work with people for longer term commitments so that we can make sure that we're not just trying to word vomit at someone and give Mm. them all this information. And then they walk away more frustrated and confused than when they walked in. And that doesn't really help anyone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that ties into the expectations of going in. If people think, again, it should be short term, they're going to get everything right away. Then their expectation is, not aligned with what reality actually will be. So it, it helps massively to know that we're going to have the time to be able to work with that person. And, and again, that's the difference between, I guess, more like a coaching perspective and working with someone to coach them to become better opposed to, yeah, appointment to appointment. You're just sort of transactional. You give them whatever information, hope they go back with it. You're not going to get good results with that versus if you're working with someone to truly help them improve over the long term, you're always going to get much better results. Awesome. I feel like we might leave it there, but a tradition that we have on the end of each podcast episode is to give people maybe one or two action items that they can take away and start using. What do you feel like could be something that people could reflect on or start using to enhance their language or or coaching cues from today? That's a great takeaway. I think I think being mindful and reflecting regularly on the words that you're using, particularly around the nocebo effect. So a lot of those negative words, taking even a log of what words you're using. And you could get, if you're in a group environment with other clinicians, you could have them call you out when you use those words and have something where you can actually action some change and reflecting on the words you use and even doing practice. So it's always good to do role play with other clinicians and practice how you explain things, how you say things to change your default patterns in the way that you speak. Cause it is practice, right? It's, mm-hmm. it does take time to change how you speak to someone. So you do need to practice it, but first you need to be aware of what words you are using and then how are you going to manipulate and change that over time? And you have to have a, a plan in place to actually do that. It's not going to happen magically because you want it to. Totally. And I think that's a really great point that I was thinking of before when you were speaking is that, you know, half of probably more than half of what we do in development is not just the technical skills, but it's, okay, now explain that to me. Okay, how would you cue this? And going through and actually practicing the coaching side of it, not just cueing, but the conversations around someone who is in pain, who is struggling, how would you say that? And just going over and over and over that again, I think is a huge benefit. And I don't actually know how many other practices are, are focusing that much on, on the soft skill department in terms of, you know, regardless of whether we're doing tendinopathy or ACL that week, we focus heavily on how would you articulate this? Because so many students have all these words that have been spoken at them and haven't actually had chances to articulate and verbalize themselves. And I think we learn when we, or we definitely master and become better when we know how to articulate and then teach someone else, right? It's the what is it? It's the learn, do, teach. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yep. Awesome. Did you, sorry, did you want to say no, one no. more thing? I was just going to close with it also to break the mold of all the issues that we were talking about. It's going to take practice and we learn often by osmosis. So if you did a placement and maybe you're with clinicians, you know, who've been in the industry for 20 years and they just default to what they've always done and you just do what we've always done, you're not going to change. So we need to be very, Uh, mindful and action oriented if we want to change those patterns and move the industry towards a better approach. 
change your environment, change your life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Richard. I'm sure you will be on another episode very soon. Um, but for now, if people want to reach out to you, obviously you're sort of on the Swift Movement Academy Instagram, but uh, your own uh, channels, where can we people find you? Yep. Uh, if they want to find me on my own channels, I'm on Instagram at Evolved Health. That's my own personal page, not super active these days. And obviously, if people want to reach out direct via Swift, they can always contact us directly there if they're looking for rehab, movement, anything in that space. Beautiful. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks, then. I have a tiny favor to ask of you, and that is to just hit that subscribe button if you have not done it yet. If you've made it this far, then I hope that this has been valuable for you and for us to get more incredible guests in front of your earlobes and faces. If you're watching us on YouTube, then please do that now. And if you have any feedback or suggestions for me or something that was a golden nugget that really stood out to you in this episode, I would absolutely love if you flicked me a message over on Instagram at Xenia Wood Official. Until next episode, and in whatever you do, move swiftly.